So today we are wrapping up this series. This is part five uh, in our series on the life of David. And today we're going to be reminded of something that very few of us actually need to be reminded about. But I'm going to remind you anyway, because that's what I like to do. Uh, And that's what what today's story reminds us of is simply this, that life rarely goes as planned. Duh, I know. We're, we're well familiar with that concept, that life doesn't go, it rarely goes as we anticipate it will. And here's the thing, plans are great. Plans are great. Everybody should plan. I plan everything, okay? I'm a big planner. I don't just plan, I back plan. Anybody familiar with the concept of back planning? Okay, I back plan most things. That means you start at the end and work your way backward to see where you should begin, Here's an example. Coffee here at church needs to be ready at church on Sunday by 9.45, okay? Each pot takes 10 minutes to brew, so that dials it back to 9.15. It takes 15 minutes to heat up the coffee maker, so now it's 9 a.m. It's a 20-minute drive from my house, so now it's leaving at 8.40. 30 minutes to get ready, which means 8.10. Make coffee for myself at home takes 10 minutes, so now it's 8 o'clock that I need to wake up if I want to have coffee ready for everyone by 9.45. That's back planning, okay? Start at the end, work your way backwards. That's kind of how I roll. You may be a planner. You may be married to a planner. You may be annoyed to be married to a planner. And everyone should plan for the future. But as great as plans are, the reality is that reality is greater. Reality is greater than our plans. Uh, Reality always trumps our plans. Reality is always going to win out. If things don't always turn out as planned, sometimes it's because of things that other people do. Sometimes things don't turn out as planned because of things that we do, because of things that we don't do, because of misplaced priorities. Any number of things can throw the plans that we have in place off track. And at the end of the day, what this means is that some of our dreams won't come true. Worse than that, it means that some of our dreams can't come true. It's not just that they won't, it's that now they can't. That the two of you, as it turns out, may not live happily ever after. That you may not get the opportunity to walk a daughter down the aisle. That perhaps you'll never need to purchase a high chair. Maybe the second marriage is starting to feel a little bit like the first one. That your prodigal son or your prodigal daughter looks like she may not be coming home. You're not going to get into that school. He's going to marry her anyway. She's going to marry him anyway. It looks like money may always be tight. You're never going to have that surplus that you've dreamed about. And even for those of us who have a relationship with God, as we've seen our dreams begin to crumble at times in our lives and things aren't going in the direction that we hoped that they would or that we planned that they would, there's this internal sense of panic that hits us when our plans and our dreams start to collapse. And maybe even a sense of anger. Because after all, God promised you, right? Not the promises of the Bible like we talked about earlier, but a personal promise that you sensed that God had made to you. Because you feel like God kind of promised you and maybe even that God owed you. You know, God owed you because you played by the rules, because you did the right thing. You raised them right, you behaved, you waited. Isn't there a cause and effect here? Isn't there sowing and reaping? You did everything, you knew how to do things right, you played the game the right way, to live the right way, and yet your dreams are not coming true. And in some cases, it looks like they can't come true. In fact, sometimes it looks like everybody else's dreams are coming true, but your dreams 
At times it can look like God has granted somebody else your wish. That was mine. That was supposed to be for me. And all of these can send us into a tailspin. So today as we wrap up this series in the life of David, we're going to ask the question that David's life answers for us. And that is, what should we do? What do we do when our dreams can no longer come true? How do we respond? How do we keep moving forward? How do we live biblically in the middle of broken dreams and shattered realities? How do we live biblically through that? Now, as we saw a few weeks ago when David was in his 20s, thanks to the behavior and the decisions of crazy and extremely insecure King Saul, David realizes that some of his dreams are not going to come true. He thought he was going to go from slaying Goliath to the palace, and that obviously didn't take place. He had a plan. It was all planned out. God had made David specific promises, but crazy King Saul decided that David needed to die, and consequently, David finds himself on the run in the wilderness, and everything's flipped upside down. And he did what many of us do when we realize that our dreams can't come together the way we hoped that they would. He panicked. And when he panicked, he made bad decision after bad decision, and people died. But during that season of his life, he learned a very, very important lesson that it was Saul's choices that ruined his dreams in this case. And now as king, he would undermine his own dreams coming true. And the lesson that he learned in that season during his kingship of his life is a lesson that we're going to discover in this story today. We're going to walk through a pretty long story today. So we've shared some narratives from the life of David. Today, we're going to go on a journey together with lots of characters, tons of drama and intrigue. So buckle up, and here we go. About 22 years after David became king, and last week we left off with David becoming king, so we're going to fast forward 22 years now. So it's a long story, but it could be even longer. We're skipping a lot of that. Um, he's in his 50s now. He's no longer the cool kid who killed Goliath. Uh, now he's in his 50s. 50s is a pretty good age to be in our world, right? You know, I'm, next year, that's me. Uh, I'm not there yet, but I will be. Uh, but in the ancient times, 50s was old. 50s was old as dirt, okay? Um, you probably lost most of your teeth by then. Uh, you were not young, not as handsome. You smelled bad. He's not cool King David anymore, okay? Uh, now he's King David in his 50s. Again, he's been king about 22 years. He sends his men off to war. We don't know why David didn't go with them, maybe because of how old he was at that point, that he didn't accompany his men. Uh, but he gets up one night while his men are out at war. In the middle of the night, it's a famous story from the Bible. It's probably one of the, after David and Goliath, this is the most famous story that David is associated with. And he looks down, he sees Uriah, one of his friends, one of his companions, one of the generals and commanders of his army. He sees Uriah's wife bathing. And her name is Bathsheba, yes. And so he calls one of his servants over, and he says, who's that? And the servant says, that's Uriah the Hittite's wife. Wife, wife, wife. And David says, send her to me. Now, as we know from the beginning of this series... God had warned Israel, don't have a king. Don't have a king. Let me be your king. I will be your king. Because when you have a king, there are problems that come with having a king. And one of the problems of having a king is that no one can tell the king no. 
You could tell the high priest no. You could tell a prophet no. You could tell a judge no. But you cannot say no to the king. So Bathsheba comes up to David. Everybody pretty much knows this story. They spend the night together. They probably spent multiple nights together. She sends a message to him later. Oh, no, I'm pregnant. And David decides, hey, I can fix this. He calls for her husband to come in off the battlefield. Give me a report of what's going on, Uriah. And hey, as long as you're here, you might as well go home. Uriah is a righteous man. He's a just man. And he spends the night on the ground outside of the palace gates, never approaching his house. David finds out he didn't go home. And he says, why didn't you go home to your wife? He says, how can I spend the night with my wife when my men are dying and being slaughtered in the mud? David says, stay one more night before you go back. David gets him drunk. David points him toward home and says, go home. Next morning, David gets up. Uriah still hasn't gone home because Uriah isn't going to spend a night in luxury when his men are dying on the battlefield. He's a good man. So David sends him back to the battle and writes a message to Joab. Joab is Uriah's commander. He's the chief of, of David's armed forces. And he says, dear Joab, put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle. And when things get really intense, withdraw from him and his bodyguard. Just pull away. It was a death warrant. It was a death sentence for Uriah. He signs it, seals it, gives it to Uriah, who delivers it to Joab. He delivers his own death notice. Joab does as the king says, because you can't say no to the king. And Uriah dies in battle. Bathsheba mourns the loss of her husband. David brings her into the palace. She's pregnant, and it looks like David, the wonderful king that he is, is going to raise someone else's child. He marries Bathsheba, and everything's good, and David has controlled the outcome of this horrible circumstance, except that this was no secret. In a world where there are slaves everywhere, the walls talk. And so eventually after they're married, the prophet Nathan now makes an appointment with David. The prophet comes before David. He comes in to see him, and he tells this made-up story. And he goes on and on about this man who did this really horrible thing. And, and as he's telling this story, David gets really, 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 really mad at the guy in this story and threatens him. And Nathan says at the end, hey, by the way, David, you're the guy in this story. And David breaks. He allows the law of God to break him, and he repents. But here's the problem, and I hope you'll listen to this this morning. Every sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. Every sin comes prepackaged with a consequence, with a penalty. Most of us have experienced that at some point. We've dealt with the concept. We know that God has forgiven us. The, the, the ultimate judgment for our sin was taken by Christ. But those consequences for sin remain. And David knew this as well. And that day, as David began to mourn his own sin and he began to own his sin, Nathan said this to him in 2 Samuel. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Because you're the leader, you are accountable to the entire kingdom. Because you're the king, you're accountable to the kingdom, and I'm going to bring about a consequence that everybody in the kingdom is going to know about. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is again the reminder that even though David was 
king, and even though he was flawed, he never confused himself as the king of Israel. He never abandoned God's law. He broke it, but then he would allow God's law to break him. And once again, we find him acknowledging his fault and surrendering to the will of God as he said, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. But there is going to be an unavoidable consequence, as Nathan has already proclaimed, for what you did. You had someone who is innocent murdered, and you tried to hide it, and you tried to lie to the entire nation to cover up your sin. So a year goes by, nothing happens. Two years, nothing happens. Five years pass, nothing happens. Finally, ten years later, this consequence takes hold. And it turns David's world completely upside down. And by the end of the story, his dreams can't come true. David's oldest son was a young guy named Amnon. And Amnon, because he was the oldest son, was in line to become the next king of Israel. He was the successor to David. But Amnon was consumed with lust for his half-sister Tamar. So Tamar and Amnon shared one parent, but not two. Uh, David had many wives. And Amnon just cannot get her out of his mind. Apparently, she doesn't even know he exists. She just completely ignores him. So finally, he's done everything he can to get her attention. Nothing works. And so he pretends to be very, very sick. And he sends a message to David. He says, David, is it okay if my sister Tamar prepares a special meal for me? And David approves. And she brings the meal over. Amnon sends everybody out of the house. And now it's just the two of them. And he tries to talk her into going to bed with him. And he begs and he begs and he begs and admits, I'm not really sick. I was just trying to get your attention. And she resists. She says, absolutely not. And then she says, no, my brother, she cried, don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? She's begging him to let her go. And scripture continues, but Amnon wouldn't listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. And then this next verse is just gut-wrenching, but the biographers, the people who bring us this story in 2 Samuel, they don't skip any of the brutal outcomes or the consequences. They tell it like it is. Then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. And Tamar is broken. She knows that her life is ruined forever. She, in this culture, will never marry now. And there are no secrets in the palace, as we've discussed. In fact, there are no secrets to the degree that David finds out what has happened. And when King David finds out what his oldest son did to one of his daughters, he's furious. And so the next step that David took, nothing. He did nothing. Now, we're only left to guess why David didn't do anything but throughout the season of his life as a parent, he just does nothing. He doesn't even address it. David had lost his moral authority. Who is David to tell anybody how to manage their lives and to manage their private affairs after what he had done? So David does nothing. Now we're introduced to another one of David's sons. His name is Absalom. And Absalom is David's third son. And we think the second son has passed away by this time. Uh, so he's next in line to be king. If Amnon is, in fact, not the king, then Absalom would become it. 
And Absalom is Tamar's full brother. So they shared the same mother as well as David as their father. And Absalom takes Tamar into his home. She's, she's been abandoned. She's destitute. And he takes her into his home uh, to provide for her. But he, too, does nothing at this point. He never speaks to Amnon, never challenges him. He acts as if he doesn't even exist. A year goes by, nothing. Two years go by. But Absalom is so shrewd in his dealings, and just when he thinks that everybody has forgotten what has happened, they've swept it under the rug, they've moved on, he throws a big feast at his home, he invites the entire family, even invites David. David says, I can't come. Uh, if I come, it'll be such a burden to your home with all my entourage. And Absalom says, what if I invite all my brothers? And so David says, knock yourself out, y'all have a good time. So Absalom has this big feast, gets everybody good and drunk. And when Amnon is really, really drunk, I don't know if you notice a pattern here. When people are drunk, bad things happen in the Bible. Just throwing that out there. Uh, when Amnon is really, really drunk, all the brothers and families are gathered around these tables. He sends his men into the dining hall, and they slaughter Amnon in front of all the brothers. And the brothers get up. They flee to Jerusalem. Absalom gets up and flees north to what we would call Syria today. Now, when King David finds out that his oldest son had been murdered by his, what we find out later, his favorite son, Absalom, King David still does nothing. He doesn't do anything, and life just goes on. And three long years pass. I mean, this, his family is in shambles. His kingship is in crisis. The kingdom is just kind of stunned at what's happening around them. This is our leader. And three long years pass, and David is missing Absalom now who went into hiding after he killed his brother. Three long years, things have settled down. Maybe people have forgotten. Life's gone back to normal. And so David invites Absalom back to Jerusalem, back to the capital. And when Absalom gets there, he's told, you're invited to move back into your home, but the king refuses to see you. So David wants him close, but he doesn't want anything to do with him. And so Absalom, for the next two years, tries to get in to see King David. He tries everything he can to get an audience. And King David ignores him, ignores him, ignores him. And Absalom is furious at this point. You brought me back here. It's like I'm under house arrest. My family won't speak to me. Nobody will even send my father a message for me. And he gets angrier and angrier and angrier. And finally, he's just fed up. So he sends his servants to Joab's farm. Remember Joab? He's the commander of all of David's armies. And he, he was kind of the go-between to get a message uh, to the king. And Joab won't have anything to do with Absalom either. Apparently he was under orders. And so Absalom sends his servants to Joab's farm, and he burns down the entire farm. This is a crazy story, folks. And Joab comes over to Absalom's house finally and says, what are you up to? <laughs> and Absalom says, well, it's nice to finally see you, Joab. I've been trying to get a message to you and my father for two years, and you've ignored me. So now that I have your undivided attention since I burned down your farm, would you please tell my father I'd like to see him? Joab agrees. Okay, I'll work it out. David calls for Joab. Joab says, King, your highness, please see your son Absalom. He's waited for two years. So Absalom comes in before the king and bows down. And as he's prostrate before the king, David lays his hands on Absalom. And it's his way of saying, you're forgiven and our relationship is restored. But it's not. At least not according to Absalom, it's not. Absalom is hurt and David never again calls. The best we could tell, David never calls for his son to see him again. That was it. 
Absalom is so angry, he's so hurt, he decides to overthrow his father, to take the kingdom, to take the throne for himself. Maybe he thought, it's mine anyway, it's mine eventually, I'm going to take it now. So what he does, once again, this dude is shrewd in his dealings. In the morning, every morning, early in the morning, Absalom would get up and he would set up a table, basically set up court outside the gates to the main city. And anyone who was coming to the city to try to get to see David uh, to get justice for some cause, for some way that they had been uh, offended, Absalom would say, let me help you. I'm the king's son. I'm in charge of his dealings. Let me address your case. So he set himself up as a judge, and he would stay there day after day after day after day. He would see all these court cases that people would have to wait for weeks or even months to see the king. And over time, the text tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of the people. For four years, four years, he sat outside the gates of the city, would talk to anyone, hear any of their cases. And people recognized how smart he was, how wise he was, what a great leader he was. And over time, Absalom stole the hearts of the people away from his father, David. And then four years later, he sets in motion his plot to overthrow his father. 2 Samuel 15, but while he was there, he sent secret messengers to all the tribes of Israel to stir up a rebellion against the king. As soon as you hear the ram's horn, his message read, you are to say, Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. He had these people scattered out all, all over the primary cities of Israel. And he said, on a certain time, on a certain day, you're all going to run through the city and just announce, Absalom is king, Absalom is king, Absalom is king. There's no newspapers, there's no radio, there's no quick communication, so people basically believed whatever they heard. Maybe Absalom is king because David has died. Maybe Absalom is king because David just abdicated his throne and decided to let Absalom be king. We don't know, but he had the hearts of the people, so when people heard that Absalom had become king, they rejoiced all over the kingdom, even though it hadn't actually happened. So 16 years now, 16 years after David's incident with Bathsheba, 16 years later, David's world is turned upside down. The consequences are finally destroying his life. His firstborn had been murdered by his favorite son, who has now instigated a civil war and is about to divide the entire nation. And then in 2 Samuel 15, we read, A messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell David, All Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. The hearts of the people are with him. And when David heard this, apparently he wasn't completely surprised. No doubt he had heard rumors of this for the past couple of years. Then we must flee at once or it will be too late, David urged his men. Hurry. If we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. David knew if I stay here and try to defend this city, if Absalom takes this city, he will assume everyone around sided with me and he will put everyone in Jerusalem to the sword. So David abandons the throne to save the city. And once again, once again, David is a fugitive. And he finds himself running from the place that he considered his home, running from the people who supposedly loved him. Once again, he's a fugitive, but this time he's not 22. This time he's 61 years old. This was not the dream. This was not supposed to happen. This was not the way he was supposed to spend this season of his life. This is not what he expected. His dreams were not coming true, and as it turned out, they could not come true anymore. And there we are. This is where, once again, our lives at some point in the past or now or in the future, our lives cross paths with the story of David. 
because we've been in those circumstances where things are not turning out the way we thought they were supposed to. Our dreams are shattered. Our reality is way different than what the plan was or what the goal was or what the dream was. And here we are, heartbroken and disappointed, maybe angry, maybe frustrated with God, maybe looking for someone to blame. Maybe you've even decided to blame God. After all, where is God? God could have prevented this from happening, right? What's the point of pushing forward? What's the point of trying? Why even try? You hung in there with him year after year after year. You hung in there with her year after year after year. You hung in there. You waited. You waited. You waited. And for what? You raised him right. You raised her right. You don't deserve to be treated this way. And look at the way he's treating you. Look at the way she's treating you. You were honest. You were told that if you were honest, good things happen. I was honest and I lost that job. You worked hard, but it hasn't really worked out. And this is when we so often make things worse for ourselves, isn't it? Because we're so angry, we're so hurt, and we're so frustrated, and we're so disappointed, and we hurt ourselves, which creates more regret. We create more debt. There's more pain. We understand where David is at in his life right now. We can relate. But this isn't the first time that David has faced a situation like this. He went through this earlier in his life when he was on the run from Saul. And David remembered because the first time he fled his kingdom, he took matters into his own hands. And he'd learned something along the way. And this is the lesson from the life of David today. This is the lesson from this season of the life of David that we all need to take to heart. Here's what happened. The whole caravan of all of his family, of all of his family's family, anyone who's a supporter of David... They're now filing out of the city, trying to get out of Jerusalem before Absalom and his men come uh, and his followers. And the king crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness, out into the, the wasteland. So David isn't even sure where they're going at this point. We don't know. He just knows this. We've got to get out of the city, and anybody who supports me needs to get out of the city as well. And Zadok, who is the high priest, and also a great name for a villain from a cheesy alien invasion movie, uh, Zadok was there too, leaving the city with David, and all of the Levites, the priests, were with Zadok, and they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is really, really important, church. And when you read these stories quickly, you miss the significance of what's happening here. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God for the nation of Israel. You could not be closer to God, as far as ancient Israel was concerned, as you were when you were in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, for some people, it was almost considered like a, a good luck charm. The blessing of God followed the Ark. If you took the Ark of the Covenant with you into battle, you were sure to win. It represented the presence of God. So it looked as if the presence of God was leaving the holy city of Jerusalem and going with David. But the implications of that were a bit overwhelming for King David. In fact, David decided that this feels manipulative, and listen to what he said. Then the king instructed Zadok to take the ark of God back into the city. Now, the people who were around David and heard him make this command or make this decision, I guarantee you there was a collective groan that went up when he said this. Because one of the things that gave them courage and confidence was they were following the king and they were following the presence of God. And for David to command them to take the presence of God, the blessing of God, the Ark of the Covenant, back into the city, it was almost as if David was saying, Absalom is in the right and we are in the wrong. But listen to David's explanation as to why he told Zadok to take the Ark of the Covenant back to the city. This is so powerful. If the Lord sees fit 
In other words, I'm not going to try to manipulate God. I'm not going to try to talk God into doing something that he doesn't want to do. I'm not going to play games again. David said, he will bring me back to see the ark and the tabernacle again. But if he is through with me, then let him do what seems best to him. David had learned his lesson. And we need to learn the same lesson. Not my will, thy will. Every time I do my will, I mess things up. Anybody relate? Every time I have my way, I get in the way. Not my will, thy will. This is the lesson. This is the takeaway for us from David's life. David lost his entire world, but he did not lose his confidence in God. David lost his world, but he didn't lose his confidence in the world. David's entire world is upside down, but he did not lose his faith in God. He doesn't reject the law. He doesn't consider himself above the law. David understands he's flawed. He's not perfect. And he refuses to be the king. He never lost sight of the fact that he is simply a king. He lost his world. He did not lose his confidence or his faith in God. He chose not to abandon God when it appeared that God had abandoned him. We read that throughout the Psalms that David said, where did you go? Why are you no longer with me? The Psalms, you, you hear the lament of David's heart as he cries out and wonders where God is. I'm not going to war with my son. I'm not going to risk the city. This is not about me. God put me in place, and God will choose how and when and where I am replaced. Wow. And he leaves the city, and he leaves the ark behind. Absalom shows up at the city, and he takes the city without a fight, but it's a hollow victory for Absalom because he has the capital, but he doesn't have the king. And the only way for him to proclaim himself the undisputed king is to have his father and to actually put his father to death. So he's in the capital. He's setting up shop in the palace, in the throne room. He's trying to decide what to do, and in walks another character in the story, and his name is Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was probably Bathsheba's grandfather, all these relationships, and Ahithophel was one of David's trusted advisors. But as soon as he realized that Absalom's going to be the next king, potentially, he flips sides. And he now becomes loyal to Absalom. And the whole nation basically had followed Absalom. So Ahithophel's like, I'm going with him because he looks like the winner. So he stays in the palace. David leaves. And when Absalom shows up, Ahithophel is there to welcome him and to say, I'm here to be your advisor. Just as I advised your father all these years, I'm here to do whatever I can do to help you, Absalom. And Absalom says to Ahithophel, what should I do? What should I do next? And Ahithophel gave Absalom this advice. He says, do not rest here. You need to get the men that you have and pursue your father immediately. Don't let him get organized. Don't let him gather more people around him. He's tired. They left in a hurry. They're not ready. They haven't set up any kind of defense. If you go now, you can catch him. And when you catch him, you can kill him. And once he's gone, all these people who left the city with him will follow you back, and you will be the undisputed king of Israel. But there was another counselor, another advisor there as well, and his name was Hushai. Now, Hushai had actually left the city with David, and David realized that Ahithophel was still in the city. He's like, hey, wait a minute. He stayed back there? A traitor. And so he said to Hushai, Hushai, I want you to go back into the city, and I want you to greet Absalom, and I want you to pretend to be a good advisor to him as well. And I want you to try to frustrate the plans of Ahithophel because Ahithophel will give him good advice, and I need you to give him bad advice. 
So he went back into the palace, and when Absalom met Hushai as they were coming into the palace, he said to him, you've heard Ahithophel's advice to me. What do you recommend? And here's what Hushai said. Well, Hushai replied to Absalom, this time Ahithophel has made a mistake. You know your father and his men. They are mighty warriors. He may be 61, but don't be fooled by the guy's age. Right now, they are as enraged as a mother bear who has been robbed of her cubs. Now, for us, that's a figure of speech, right? These men had hunted bear. They know what a mother bear is like when she's separated from her cubs. So this is literal, not figurative for them. And remember that your father is an experienced man of war. He won't be spending the night among the troops. He is probably already hidden in some pit or cave. And when he comes out and attacks and a few of your men fall, there will be panic among your troops, and the word will spread that Absalom's men are being slaughtered. In other words, don't rush this. Don't listen to Ahithophel. Take your time. Consolidate. Gather a larger army. And, and once you gather all the tribes to yourself, then you can personally lead this campaign to overthrow your father. And Absalom thought that was great advice. And Ahithophel knew the end was near. He knew that if David is given time to organize and gather an army, there's no way he could be defeated in open combat. So you know what Ahithophel did? He went home and he hung himself. This story is intense, church. Uh, so much drama. David's life was filled with one intense moment after another. It seems like he never has, like, breathing moments in his life. And David, in the meantime, goes to a city you probably never heard of called Machaniam. And he goes to the city, and he hears that Absalom is coming, and he realizes he has no choice but to defend himself, defend the people who are with him. And so David does a very smart thing. David divides his army up into thirds. And he puts a different commander over each of the thirds. He gives them these very, very specific instructions. And he gives the commanders these instructions so all the troops can hear. And here's what he says. And the king gave this command to Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. For my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. I realize this is a war. I realize it's going to be chaotic. But if there's any way to spare my son's life, I want you to spare his life. And all the troops heard the king give this order to his commanders. And David's generals insist that David not join them in battle. So he stays on the wall of the city. He watches his shoulders march out to confront his son. And the Bible tells us that this battle did not take place on an open field. Uh, but it actually took place in the forest of Ephraim. The forest of Ephraim, which meant superior numbers, meant very little when you're doing battle in the forest. Experience and organization and communication mattered much more. We don't know if David's men drew them into the forest. We don't know why the battle was in the forest, but David's men were better organized to fight under these conditions because he had three commanders, whereas Absalom's troops were all looking to him for leadership. And then we read this, and the Israelite troops were beaten back by David's men. There was a great slaughter that day, and 20,000 men laid down their lives. The battle raged all across the countryside, and more men died because of the forest than were killed by the sword. Now, when I read this, I immediately thought of Treebeard and the Ents from the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, when it said and more men died because of the forest, but I don't think the forest came to life in this case. It was just kind of where my mind went. Uh, I think it was probably low-hanging branches, a lot of roots, soft spots, bogs that tripped up the horses, and, and guys died because of it. Anyway, many, many men were injured or taken out of the battle because of the fact that they were fighting in this forest. And eventually, Absalom is caught, and instead of being held prisoner and taken back to David, Joab butchers David's son as the army watches. Once Absalom was taken out of action, once people knew he was dead, his army immediately stopped fighting. They threw down their weapons, and the text said they all just went home. David is told that Absalom is dead, and he mourns the loss 
of his son. In fact, he mourns the loss of his son to such a degree that his soldiers are afraid to celebrate their victory. And Joab goes to David and says, David, what's wrong with you? The way you're mourning your son, it's like your men think they've lost. The men feel as if you wish they had died and your son had lived. So get over this and go out there and celebrate the victory. They just gave you back your kingdom. But once again, it was a hollow, hollow victory for David because he loved his son Absalom. He returns to Jerusalem as the king, but his world would never be the same. And nine years later, at the age of 70, he died. Now, it really speaks to the authenticity of this story because the writers seem to have done nothing to hide us from all of David's faults and his failures and his flaws. And the thing that's so amazing, the thing I want us to take away as we wrap up this narrative of David is that with all of his flaws, he never lost his confidence in God. Church, you need to understand how important this is. No matter how flawed you are, no matter how many mistakes you make, no matter how upside down your life turns, don't ever lose your confidence in God. When things did not go his way and it was somebody else's fault, when things did not go his way and it was his own fault, with all of that, he never lost his confidence in God. At David's somewhat sad ending... And it was. It was kind of a sad ending. His sad ending reminds us of something extraordinarily important. So if you've been daydreaming or thinking about something else and you kind of drifted during this long story, I really need you to listen to this next part because this is the takeaway. Simply this, the foundation of our faith, the foundation of your faith, the foundation of my faith, the foundation of our faith is not answered prayer. The foundation of faith is not everything going our way. The foundation of our faith is not happily ever after endings. In fact, it's always a mistake. Even though we all tend to do this, it's always a mistake to wrap our faith in God around the fulfillment of our dreams or the answers to our prayers. It's always a mistake to do that. My dreams came true. God is good. My dreams didn't come true. I don't think there's a God anymore. We can't do that. Because dreams that don't come true and prayers that don't get answered say nothing about the presence or the goodness or the faithfulness of God. They say nothing about God's presence or his lack of activity. David, I think of all the people in the Old Testament, would be the quickest to remind us that when we feel forsaken, we are mistaken. When we feel mistaken, when we feel, when we feel forsaken, that God has abandoned us, that he's, he's left us behind, we are wrong. God is with you. God is walking through the fire with you. God is carrying you. God is helping you. God is empowering you. God is strengthening you. And you don't have to go through it alone. You're going to face difficult times. You're going to face adversity. Things aren't going to go the way you've dreamed. Things aren't going to go the way you've hoped. But as you go through that, God has not left you. God is with you, and he will see you through to the end. We're mistaken when we feel forsaken. When circumstances don't go our way, when our dreams can't come true, to assume from our circumstances that God is not real or God is not present, David would say, no, don't make that mistake. Because through all the highs and all the lows and through all the ups and downs, God has been with me. And we need to, with our own circumstances and our own broken hearts and our own anger and our own dreams that can't or won't come true anymore, we need to join David in this extraordinary statement that he makes when he's leaving the city. All hope is gone he doesn't know if he will ever see the city again. He doesn't know if he will ever be restored. He doesn't know what's going to happen in this season of his life. To join him when he makes this incredible statement, if the Lord sees fit, David said, 
he will bring me back to see the ark and the tabernacle again. But if he is through with me, then let him do what seems best to him. In other words, not my will, thy will. Your will, God, not mine. I know how I want things to turn out. I know how I want things to go. I know how I've prayed they will go. I thought for sure they would go this way. But not my will, God, thy will be done. I may lose my world, but I will not lose my confidence or my faith in God. I choose not to abandon him. Even when everything around me says that God has abandoned me because I know that he has not. Because the foundation of our faith isn't answered prayer. It's not in our circumstances. The foundation of our faith is that God is good and he loves us. The foundation of your faith has to be in the truth that God is good and he loves us. In fact, David wrote it. David journaled it. It takes us all the way back to the first message in this series. We looked at this incredible statement, this declaration that David made. Maybe it was these very words or a statement like this that got David through over and over and over and over throughout his life when he penned these powerful words that regardless of how things are going, when my dreams are coming true, when they're not coming true, even when they can't come true, in you, in you, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. And I'll tell you what's amazing, church. You're seated around people who they look good and they're all dressed up because we all dress up, we all get together, we all smile, we all smell good when we're together for church. But you are surrounded by people that if they were to come up here and they were to tell you their story, this is their story. It's a story of heartbreak. It's a story of disappointment. It's a story of broken promises. It's a story of dreams that can't come true. And yet you're surrounded by men and women this morning who have an extraordinary faith and confidence in God because they have not made the mistake of wrapping their faith in God around their expectation of how God should or could behave. And they would echo this truth to anyone caught in the middle of a broken dream or a shattered reality. The truth that sustains every one of us was true for David. It's true for those sitting around you this morning. It's true for me, and it's true for you. You are not forsaken. You have not been abandoned. There is a God. He is good, and he loves you. There is a God. He is good, and he loves you. Let me say it again. There is a God. He is good and he loves you and he will see you through to the end. And that's why in spite of what happens around us, we can say with confidence today, not my will, but thy will be done. Let's pray. God, as we try to process everything we just heard and these incredible stories that took place in Scripture and these sometimes brutal and horrific events and inspiring events and and everything in between. God, we're reminded through David's example that you are ever-present. You are always there. You are with us and you are for us. And Lord, my heart breaks as I know yours does. For those of us who may be going through a season right now of broken dreams, of a shattered reality that we don't know how to reconcile. And God, in those seasons of life where we don't have the answer and we don't know what direction to go, 
I pray, God, that you would continue to lead us. I pray that you would continue to guide us. Let your Holy Spirit bring comfort and strength and peace. And Lord, through it all, let us be reminded that you are good and you love us. I pray, God, that that truth would be the foundation of every one of our faith, that you are good and you love us. And so, Lord, as we go today, I pray that you would wrap our hearts in that truth. Insulate us from the lies the enemy would try to tell us. Insulate us from the effects of the chaos in our lives and in the world around us. And Lord, I pray that through it all, we can remain strong and the fruit of the Spirit can be evident in us that even though it doesn't make sense, God, we would have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let that come pouring out of us even though everything around us says we should have the exact opposite. Lord, let us place our faith in you. Thank you, God. Thank you for the promises of your word that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.